Would you pray with me? Father, we turn on our televisions or our feeds this weekend and we see so much that uh, if we were to feel it fully would, would paralyze us. We pray for those who are in China. We pray for those who are called upon to act with wisdom and urgency in the containment of the virus. And we pray that that they would act with all skill and care and that many would be preserved. Father, we pray for what this nation faces foremost right now for the sake of truth and honor to resist the inclination towards partisanship. Father, we pray that you would, you would inspire all those who are responsible for so much to act with care, to be supremely humbled, but to see their office as an expression of trust, and that they would act with great clarity of vision of what is true and good and beautiful. Father, we pray for our concern for those who are the least, as one of your theologians has said, to be is the first good. And so we give you thanks that we are and that life is. And then even in its sorrows and its pains and its afflictions, to be is the first good. And to find ourselves in you united is the greatest good. So we ask that you might help us to have concern for all life in all moments in all places, in all stations, in all afflictions and triumphs. Father, we pray for this, your body, for the children of this community, for their tenderness and their innocence and their, their desire to know what it is to live. We pray for those who are responsible for them, parents, teachers, mentors, we ask that you preserve them and protect them and allow them to see beauty and help us as a body to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We pray for those who are caregivers in this body, and there are many, that you would uphold them and allow them to see that their sacrifice is a good, it is pleasing in your sight, and despite all of its challenges, is a privilege. Father, we pray for those who have blessed us, but now who serve in other places. We pray for Ben. We pray for Colin. We ask that you'd prosper them in their new work. Pray for the diaconate of this body, the deacons and deaconesses. We ask that you'd allow their zeal not to flag and their desire to show mercy and to inspire it in all of us. And Father, as we give to the work of this church, knowing full well that that money could be spent in any number of good ways and enjoyable ways, we pray that in its sacrifice we would see it as a privilege and that we would take heart in it and know that it blesses even unto us. Father, we need to hear from you <clears throat> to believe that you are true, that you are real, and that you are present 
And so whatever it might be for you to work in us in these few minutes together, we ask that you would. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So when anybody tells you that they have a chart that's going to explain everything, you should look with suspicion. But I'm going to show you a chart that explains everything. See, there's this thing called Google, and Google knows everything, or it claims to. And there's this new thing that's come out in the last several years called Ngram Viewer. And if you type in a word, it will consult the 25 million volumes it has digitized and scanned and archived from as far back as 1800 to, to around 2008. It's only gotten that far. But already, 25 million volumes have been scanned into its archives. And now you can just type in a word, and it will tell you every instance and how often that word has been used across those nearly 200 years of usage. And so here I'm going to show you the chart. That's the word identity. That tracks the usage of that word from 1800, and that only takes you to 2008. Imagine if we could see what the numbers would be between 2008 and 2020, the use of the word identity. It's enormous. It's as if identity is everything. And surely it is in our day, right? It works its way into education and culture and politics and literature and art and everything. Everybody's talking about identity. It is that one thing that we seek most to find. It is that one thing we seek most to triumph. And it's that one thing that if you come after me in that way, I feel the most threatened. And therefore, I get the most angry, or so it would seem. Identity is everything. And, you know, it's, it's kind of remarkable. And I'm not here to explain all the reasons why it has come to be that way. You can come up with your own theories. We could all venture certain possibilities that have a certain credibility to them. That's not as important as the fact that everybody's thinking about identity. And in some ways, the way we work our way forward into forming one and finding one and preserving one, sometimes it's almost so pathetic that it's funny. I want to show you several um, uh, little slides here of imaginary self-help books that all speak to the question of our identity. So here's one. It's called uh, My Life as a Fake Smiler. Right? We do everything we can to show everybody that everything's fine. Or how about this one? How to Gain Instant Success by Lowering Your Standards. Remember that? Here's, I like this one. How to Feel Valuable by Doing Things That Destroy You. Right? Identity is everything to us. Or this one, how to keep yourself so busy that there is no time left to face your problems. It's all working, right? And then the last two are about staying silent. How to stay silent so others stay comfortable. Yeah, we're not, it's not as funny anymore, is it? Or this one, how to stay silent so others keep believing that you're smart. Our attempts to create for others a certain perception of who we are, if not to reinforce certain beliefs about what we we think about ourselves. Sometimes it's so tragic it's funny. At other times, it's so tragic that you kind of want to go, really? Um, How many of you have heard of the city in Switzerland called Davos? Anybody heard of that? And, And every year, you hear in the news for about a week, the Davos conference in Switzerland where all the business elites... And all the economists and all the people interested in climate, they kind of show up and they, and they sample their cheeses, because it is Switzerland, right? 
But one observer of, of those that kind of show up for something like that, where they talk about all these big ideas that's going to change the world, people that are at the top of their game, the highest echelon of whatever industry or field they find themselves in, those who you would think have the most stable and sturdy sense of identity in themselves because they have no peers in what they do. An observer of that group said this, here's a hypothetical that anyone with the usual quotient of ambitions and insecurity might ask themselves. Do you think you could ever become so successful, so confident in your wealth and your professional relationships that you would no longer worry about any of this stuff? That you would not compare your achievements to other people's that you would no longer wonder whether you were the right in the right place because you believe that the coolest place is exactly where you happen to be? This question, by the way, almost certainly has a correct answer. No. And he's thinking about people who have absolutely no question about whether they are esteemed. And yet they themselves manifest the deepest insecurity about who they think themselves to be even though they themselves are at the top of their game, so to speak. Isn't it tragic? Identity, it would seem, is everything. And you know who agrees with that? Paul. The Apostle Paul. And so does Jesus. But it's at that point where they part company, with all due respect, to the ways in which we fixate on identity in a modern context. They would agree Everything, identity is everything. How you understand yourself has more implications for more things than you do than anything that you might imagine. But as you might expect Paul and Jesus to do, they kind of put a spin on the idea of identity by saying this. The identity that you're given by God is far greater than any identity you might get By your own designs. The title of the sermon is this. Given is greater than gotten. Despite all the ways and all the forms and all the experiences that you and I go after to form our identity. Things that in and of themselves are not a problem. In many ways they're a blessing. They're a gift. But they will never be greater. Never be more crucial than the identity that you are given, having nothing to do with you. For these first six weeks of the new year, we're listening to one chapter. It's the chapter, the eighth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. We're calling it the elevator pitch because it's uh, Paul's elevator pitch to the world about the nature of the gospel. And on this third week, his third plank of this elevator pitch is this. The identity you're given is far greater than any identity you might get. And that's the one thing that perhaps is among the hardest to believe. So he's going to wound us so that he might heal us. So we're going to consider three ways in which we have a certain identity that is given and then ask ourselves, why is it more important for us to believe that than anything else that we might have about our identity that we get? Three ways. So if you're able to stand, we're going to continue in Romans 8, and we'll start, we'll back up a little bit from where we were last week. We're going to start again in verse 12. Romans 8, starting in verse 12. So then, brothers, we're debtors, 
not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The first 11 verses of Romans chapter 8, which we've heard over the last few weeks, is Paul doing one thing to surface for us the choicest claims about the gospel of Jesus. He's out to tell us what God has done on our behalf through his beloved son by his blood. And in those first 11 verses, if you are with us, he says this, that by faith in what he has done, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in him. That whatever is corrupt in us, what is regretful in us, what is a trajectory in us that leads us towards a little bit of death, there's no condemnation. The judgment has been satisfied. And not only the judgment upon us, but the estrangement of which the judgment is a symptom or is a consequence. Whatever there is distance between us and God, that's been reconciled through what Jesus has done and by our faith in him. That's the claim. And in that claim, God has not just said, I have done all this for you. Now it's all on you to figure out your way forward. By virtue of faith in his son, we've been given something. We've been given a gift. And not something, but someone. We've been given his spirit. And that spirit is said to indwell us. To abide in us. To influence us. To whisper and to scream. To wound and to heal. Mostly by showing us Jesus. And as you heard last week, by faith in the son, through the power of the spirit, mortality Our mortality, to which we are all subject, does not have the last word. This is all what comprises the good news. These are the choicest claims that Paul might make for us to explain to us what it is he's done for us. And if you take just those claims on their own terms, there's only one way that you can really conceive of yourself in terms of your identity, and it's this. You're indebted. You're a debtor to him. And he said as much in the first verse of our passage. So then, brothers, we're debtors. Everything you have from him is owed to what he has done on your behalf. All we have is at his cost. He got the bill. He pays the bill. You and I show up at his table with empty pockets, and we leave that table with full hands. You and I are in debt. But it's here where Paul kind of puts a 
uh, a kind of an odd turn on where he goes in his little sentence there. He says we're debtors. And he says, but you're debtors, but you're not debtors to the flesh. To live according to the flesh. Now, wait a minute. What? <clears throat> not debtors to the flesh. Okay, what does he mean by in the flesh? It's not mean flesh as in skin, bone, body, blood, brain, organs, endocrine systems. Not that kind of flesh. To be in the flesh, as we've heard him say over the last few weeks, is to be subservient to a nature that is full of so many warped and distorted desires that wherever you go, you follow the path to whatever you're going for, it is a dead end. It is to have an inherent nature that is both susceptible to sin and is hostile to God. That's what it means to live according to the flesh. To live by no standard apart from the one that comes to you of your own natural inclinations. And that's its own path to destruction. And as you hear that, you might think to yourself, great. God is just one sort of angry taskmaster that is upset about disobedience. Like he needs to lighten up, maybe you think. To be sure, friends, to understand God is to understand that there is offense at sin. There's offense. Not just regret. Not just, oh, poor thing, offense. But to live according to the flesh is not only to live in offense to God, it is also to believe that it's all on you to be right with the universe. That you will need to forge your own way, find your own path, take upon your own self whatever you think it's going to take to be enough, to be okay with whatever standard you think has authority. That's what it means to live according to the flesh. Congratulations, it's all on you. As we said at the top of the hour, the gospel is this. Your virtue serves you, but it cannot save you. To live according to the flesh is to believe that your virtue will save you. And if you have it, you're fortunate. And if you don't, oops, Now what? That's what it is to live according to the flesh. It is to live according to the belief that it's all on you. It's to ground your identity in the belief that whatever identity you can get, whatever one you can cultivate and find and care for and preserve, it's all on you. That's how you live according to the flesh. It is to commission your own legs to outrun whatever you're trying to outrun and to catch up to whatever thing you need in order to be okay. It is to believe that you're not in debt, but it is to believe that you have a mandate before you that you alone will able to satisfy for yourself. It is to believe that you must find your own good. And look, Let's just be really honest here. There's all sorts of layers to the identity that you and I get, whether you are a teacher or a parent or a worker or a mentor or an official or a boss. All of those things, they're wonderful. They're they're blessings. They can be gifts. They're acts of roles and responsibilities that help serve ourselves, our families, and our world. They're not intrinsically problematic. They're just fragile. And they're fleeting. And if you want to wrap yourself in all of those things as if they're the only thing that will keep you warm, there will be a day when you'll be left in the cold. 
Mark Helperin is a, a wonderful author. He wrote a book of short stories, and one of his short stories is called Vanderveer's House. And it's about a man who is a sort of a self-made man. He uh, kind of a sort of an Ayn Rand kind of man. He loves to uh, build stuff and make stuff, and he excels at everything that he does. And it talks about his life, about the, the first time he met this woman. That woman became his wife, and by that point... In the story, though, he is estranged from his wife, and yet he's a man who's impeccably dressed, kind of a great Gatsby kind of figure. He's impeccably dressed, impeccably capable, impeccably wealthy, and he's built this amazing mansion. He's had this mansion that he's designed from the ground up. He oversaw the, the contractors, the subcontractors. He, he made sure that the pipes would be such that behind the walls, when the water runs, you can't even hear it. He designed his kitchen that his appliances would all be on runners that you could pull away from the walls. Why? So that you could clean behind the appliances so there would never be that, that, those dust bunnies and that mold and mildew from behind. He thought of everything. But here at the end of the short story, he's sitting out just sort of surveying the wonders of his finely manicured backyard. And he kind of comes to this realization. He realizes the lie he's led. He realizes in that moment, surveying his wonderful manicured backyard, that everything he had, he thought would be everything that he wanted. And he realizes how much he had deceived himself. And there, as he's having that sort of inner discovery of realization, he begins to smell smoke. And he turns around and he sees that his mansion is on fire. Your house is on fire. You know what your first instinct will be, to run to save it. And instead, you know what he does? He lingers. And he stares at this colossal thing that he's built begin to burn to the ground. And there, in the last lines of the, sh- of the short story, he says this. The heat was such that even the porcelain might melt. He felt the seat, but he did not move, nor did he want to move. Even all as he had built and worked for so over many years vanished before him at great speed, for he had already left it behind. And his spirit had been unlocked and his soul freed in the gift that had come on the wind. Here is one who in a just an instant, had come to realize that anything that he might build his identity that was in this world that is subject to fire and decay is just that. Incapable of holding you, stabilizing you, orienting you to your world. It's a thing that might bless, that might be a gift, but it's not enough. And isn't it funny that Mark Helpern uses words like wind and spirit to speak of this person's transformation? You're a debtor. You're a debtor to grace. And that has two implications for us. One, that God could really ask anything of you, and it would be fitting. He won't ask you to harm. He won't ask you to sin. But if he asks you to forgive and forbear, he is worthy. If he asks you to love and to sacrifice and forget yourself, Is he worthy? He is. Can he ask you to trust him even when this world thinks you're a fool for doing so? Is he worthy? He is. If you're in debt to him in just those ways, then one implication is he is worthy of anything that he might ask of you. He can ask you to do anything. 
But to be indebted to him is to be thinking of debt in a very particular way. Usually when we think of indebtedness, we think of it, we have to pay it back. And then once we've paid in full, we're kind of done with the person to whom we're indebted. That's how we typically think of indebtedness. I pay off my mortgage, I'm done with Wells Fargo. You pay off your car, you're done with whoever it is that you owed the money to. You're done. Paid in full. You can go your separate ways. We're done. We don't talk to each other anymore. That's not the nature of the indebtedness we have with God. This indebtedness, you can't pay back. You can't compensate him. There is no paid in full. And to be sure, this indebtedness is never aspiring to the point in which God is saying to you, can we just sort of get this in full so that we can be done with each other? On the contrary, this indebtedness has one purpose. Or this awareness of our indebtedness as the nature of our identity has one purpose. To endear him to us. To help us to see him as worthy and beautiful. Why? That we might live therefore and thereafter a life of repentance and faith. That you and I would be, if by the deeds, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live, he says. He doesn't just say, all right, I'm holy. I've saved you. Now you go be holy on your own. He's given us his spirit. He's given us the one to remind us of who we are, to help us to see the danger of where we go if we follow our own desires apart from him, to help us to see most of all, though, the grievousness of what we do whenever we sin. If we're indebted to him, then we would not want to do anything that would violate the nature of that relationship any more than you would want to harm somebody that's loved you for all your days. The Holy Spirit is helping us to see Jesus so that we would see the danger in what we do that harms the relationship and the grief, the grieving of the Spirit in whatever we do to follow our ways that might otherwise offend Him. We're debtors. But we're not only debtors. We're something else. We're something else that speaks to the greatest motive for anything that we might do before the Lord, and that you heard spoken of there starting in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. If you are, if the Spirit dwells in you, this is what is true of your identity. You're a child. You're a son. You're his You belong, and you belong not because of anything that you have done, but because he has adopted you. And what do we know about adoption? You're chosen. You're picked. But you're not chosen like if you went out to a Christmas tree farm this last Christmas, you tried to find the best tree you could. That's not the nature of his adopting you. The nature of his adopting you is more like Charlie Brown in his Christmas story. He finds the most pitiful one in the lot and says, this one, I want this one. We're all pitiful. We're all drooping. We all can't hold up the slightest weight of virtue or of beauty or of glory. And he says, this one. It's the nature of our adoption. See, look, and that speaks to your motivation for whatever obedience he calls from you. Because Paul speaks of two kinds of motivations here. He talks about a fear 
A fear that's like a slavery. And it's slavery because you're out to work for something like your life depends on it. And what that fearful pursuit you're out to that might feel like slavery is this, this search for acceptance. And you can live in fear of that. Or you can live by another motivation. Because look, I know I've already said you're debtors. And in that sense, you've realized that part of your motivation for whatever you do for God is gratitude. And that's great. But don't lie to me. I know. If I tell you that you're debtors, because Paul tells you that you're debtors, you might respond in part by gratitude, but you also might be responding in part by something else. Like fear. You know what captures that kind of paradox? This little scene at the end of Saving Private Ryan. Private Ryan has just been rescued by a a small squad of guys, most of whom have died in the course of events. And here is the moment in which Saving Private Ryan, Private Ryan must hear, how do I respond? And then at the end of his life, taking stock of his life. with you, I I wasn't sure how I'd feel coming back here. Every day, I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. James. Captain John H. Miller.
two strong emotions in the same moment. Gratitude for what those men had done for him to live that day and end up having a family. And a little bit of apprehension and anxiety, if not fear. Craig Lotz, who helped me put this clip together, noticed one thing that never entered into Steven Spielberg's mind when he made that film is this. When he asked the question, was I a good husband? Did I live a good life? Before she answers, she looks at the cross and then looks at him and says, you are. That's the Holy Spirit. He points you to the cross and says unto you, oh yes, grateful is proper. Gratitude is proper. But no, you can't earn this. You're mine because of what I've done. You're beloved because of the belovedness that I did in my own work. And that changes the way you think of whatever else you might strive to do in way of obedience in his worthiness. You are a child because of what he did. You are a son because of his work. Which leads you to the last part of this equation. What does it mean to be his? What is this identity that we're given that we cannot get? You're also an heir. You're a debtor who's a son who's also an heir. And you hear that in the last verse. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. If you're an heir, you've been made a promise. And that promise is one of gain. If you're an heir of Jesus, then what is his is yours by virtue of your faith in him. What will accrue to him accrues to you. And the nature of that inheritance, anybody in the New Testament scarcely tries to paint the slightest picture of it apart from these broad contours. What does Paul say? What does Paul say elsewhere? He says this. Now we see through a glass darkly and then we shall see him face to face. We shall know him as we have been fully known. That's your inheritance. If we endure with him, we shall also reign with him. That's your inheritance. When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's your inheritance, according to John. An inheritance, according to Peter, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's your inheritance. That is yours by virtue of your identity being given to you as an heir. But if you were listening closely, you also heard of something else that you will share in by virtue of that identity, is that you will share in his suffering. I don't want to say that, and you don't want to hear that, but Jesus says to us rather unequivocally, a servant is not greater than his master. And therefore, to be out there for him in this world, you should not be surprised if it comes back upon you in a way that you didn't want. To follow him is to invite mistreatment. It is to invite ridicule. It is to invite misunderstanding. It is to invite having motives to you that are ascribed improperly. It is to invite all matter of being harangued and harassed and marginalized and discarded and passed over. And in too many places in this world, it means you will be harmed if not killed. It's just part of the deal. And you might think, why would I sign up for that at all? I'll tell you. Because for those who suffer by virtue of their faith in him, you know what that is an evidence of? Freedom. Freedom from the fear 
of what you might lose in that suffering. Freedom into a confidence that you have something that you cannot lose. Freedom in believing that what you have, you have eternally. That's freedom. And it's the best kind of freedom in which to suffer because in these days, friends, there's a whole lot of suffering that people drape around themselves and use it as a pretext for becoming a dictator and a tyrant upon others. But this suffering is an evidence of freedom. Reverend James Lawson was a black pastor in the South in the 60s during the Civil Rights Movement. He trained students who were believers how to resist things nonviolently. And he tells the story of one day of being at one of those nonviolent protests and a white man walks up to him and spits in his face. And in that moment, Reverend James Lawson does what none of us would have thought to do as a first instinct. What would we have done? Cuss him out, run away, maybe bear up, maybe draw a fist. Reverend James Lawson looks at that man and just spitting him and says, do you have a handkerchief? And before the guy that spit on him can even think about it, he he sort of instinctually reaches for a handkerchief and hands it to him. And Reverend James Lawson says thank you and wipes his face of the man's spittle. And in that moment, he looks at the man and says thank you and asks him about the motorcycle he's riding. And a little conversation kind of crops up, an amical conversation. And by the end of it, the white man who had spit in the black man's face says Can we do anything for y'all? And people ask Reverend James Lawson, dude, why didn't you want to bear up and clock that guy? He spit in your face. He looked at you with contempt at your very heart, at your very identity. Why did you do that? And he says this, you have to keep in your mind an imagery of infinite possibility. Where do you get that? from your belief that the identity that you've been given is greater than any identity that you might get. He believed already in one who adored him, and that was enough for him. He didn't care if the rest of the world reviled him. How God thought of him was enough. Friends, as I've said at the beginning, any identity you might get for yourself the, the, the layers upon layers of ways in which you think of yourself, those are blessings and gifts, but there's one, two reasons why you don't want those to be foremost. Because all those forms of identity are passing away. All those forms of identity represent a certain temptation for you to think of them so highly that you think you can't live without them or that you will fail them in such a way that you descend to the depths of despair. You... They're good and they're gifts, but they're not everything. And if you make them everything, then you are holding on with a death grip that which will have to come apart from your hands. But you also will have to realize that your identity is not only made up of the things that you're proud of, but your identity, if you follow that rule, is also made up of things that you are not proud of, that you will not speak of. What then? What now? If you are living in a world right now in which you think the most important thing is your own identity, then I encourage you to repent and believe in the one who is out to give you a better one. And for those who already have, 
who sometimes think that that gotten identity is greater? Here's my application. Stop, drop, and pray. There's never a bad time to humble yourself before the Lord. There's never a time that's bad for you to get on your knees and say, I think this is too important to me. Or I think because I'm failing it that I am nothing. Or because this innate part of my identity is having to transition in ways that I don't want and I'm not ready for, I'm kicking against the goads and I despise everything that is and I'm falling into despair. I need your help to remind me of that given identity more. Stop, drop, and pray. That's the takeaway. That's where we go. It's why Martin Luther said this. You are beloved because of the beloved and for no other reason. And if that's all you do when you stop, drop, and pray is to ask him to remind you and to believe that you are beloved because he is the beloved, you could do worse. Let's pray. Let it begin with me.